I'm David W. Burner, and this is The Writer's Shed. On this episode, Suzanne Lakin, her pen name, C.S. Lakin, is a multi-published novelist and writing coach. She works full-time as a copy editor, critiques about 100 manuscripts or more a year, She teaches writing workshops and gives instruction on her award-winning blog, Live, Write, Thrive, which I've had a chance to guest blog on. I appreciate that. Suzanne, you are a busy lady. Welcome. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're a blog fan, and you're perfectly welcome to write another blog post, whatever you like. (laughs) Yeah, well, I do like yours because I I think it, it leans a lot toward the person who is aspiring, and that could be on any place in the spectrum of writing, I think. Um, you know, aspiring to the next level, aspiring to the first publication, expire, you know, aspiring to whatever. So I right. think that, and you hit all those marks, but I, you know, as a coach and in so many manuscripts that you've looked at, you know, is there, this may be a tough question to answer, but is there one thing or one particular kind of thing that most writers have trouble with at the beginning? Is there something that they struggle with that it seems like a, uh, the the one thing or the one aspect that trips them up? Yeah, sure. I don't think that's a hard question because I would say quite pointedly that the biggest problem I see in manuscripts that I edit and critique is a failure to have a really great premise. And everything hinges on that. And people spend months of their life writing these books of these stories that are boring or they've been done a million times or there's just not enough conflict or high stakes there's all those elements that you have to have in the story but if the premise is weak if it just isn't riveting and and fresh and unique it's going to be really hard to write a great story uh, you know, some people can take the same old type of plot, you know, with typical romance, whatever, set it in a, a, maybe a new interesting situation and make it brilliant because they're just amazing writers. But for I think for the most part, most people are good writers. Most writers that are dedicated to their craft are good writers. There are few that are brilliant and masterful and just amazingly talented. Um, I, I remember one time I ate one of my literary agents years ago said that um, it's not, I mean, you have to have a little bit of talent, but really what makes you successful as an author is perseverance. <laughs> and I thought that yeah, was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And part of the perseverance is studying your craft, right? Learning how to write well to fit your genre, which is so important. But I would really say that if you have a great premise, you know, if you have a like a high concept, a great idea where you say to somebody, hey, you know, I'm writing a story about this futuristic world in which um kids have to kill each other in these games and only one person wins and it's just run by the government i mean you go wow that's just like what a weird interesting story that has potential for a lot of excitement and danger and high stakes right but you know if you tell somebody i mean we've all you know seen why the hunger games is so successful but if you tell somebody you know you're writing a book about this guy who meets this girl and they fall in love and then you know it turns out like his brother dies and you know he ends up getting accused of setting a fire but then it's not really you know then he gets exonerated so he leaves and goes to the california decides he wants to like just go you know drive around for a few years and he meets this woman and gets involved with her but he realizes he really doesn't care for her so then he decides he's going to go back 
home, maybe. And then he's learned that the woman he did love before had a baby and she got married. I mean, like, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is very similar to what I'm working on right now. <laughs> and um, okay. But I'm just like, there. where's the structure? Where's the premise? I, I mean, if you have, if you can't put your whole premise into a one sentence story concept, you're you've already failed and yeah, you're it's, the, it's the elevator pitch thing right yeah, yeah kind of that because the yeah. one sentence story concept is basically the sentence that says when so and so when such and such happens to protagonist um he decides he must do x amid this type of conflict in order to accomplish this goal right that's the whole right. Right. thing about the premise in a nutshell your protagonist needs a goal and there has to be high stakes and um so I would say most of the manuscripts that I come across, even ones by people that are have done many novels. I mean, I just did an outline critique yesterday with somebody who's written a number of novels, and the whole thing just completely had no story. Mm. And I, I basically, I mean, I try to be nice and polite, of course, but I'm like, okay, there's no premise here. You have a couple people sitting around a fire talking, and then you have like they one guy's a, a you know, he's mining for gold and he finds a jewel and then there's some kind of a fight and somebody dies. And like, well, what? Is, I don't get this. Like, what is the story here? You can't put it in a one sentence concept, you know, because it just isn't focused. So that's really the one bit of advice I would say. You know, back in the day, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, when I first started writing novels, there, we talked about <laughs> this thing called yeah. a hook, right? For but, sure, you yeah. know, it's very different from what we talk about today. When we talk about hook, we're talking about like, okay, what's your opening hook for your first scene? Like, what's your first line hook? But back in the day, they used to call it your story hook. In other words, when you gave that elevator pitch to an agent, they said, well, what's your hook? You know, and what they're talking about is what is the one unique twist that if you told it to somebody, it would be a surprise and they would go, whoa, that's, that's cool, right? Because it's the unexpected. And um, that surprise is usually what's revealed at the climax or right before the climax of your story. So if you can take your story idea, your concept and say, okay, what could I have a total surprise twist, you know, um, reversal, something that reader doesn't expect, for instance, the sixth sense is a perfect example, right? The yeah, big yeah, story right. twist, yeah. the fact that, you know, that the main character is actually dead and he didn't know it, right? Um, and you don't want to have just a twist that's just clever because, you know, it, it's clever, but it doesn't work for your story. You really need a twist that works great. And this is why um, great mystery writers are so successful and they have such a huge following and why mystery mystery genre is so popular for instance presumed innocent is a great example of a great first novel sure legal yeah. thriller that has that hook you know it's it's set up like a murder mystery because it is a murder mystery right but it's set in the legal genre legal thriller genre but it also has that same kind of uh component to the story where when you get to the climax and you learn who actually kills this woman you are surprised and also um, not surprised because anybody setting up a good mystery whether whatever the genre it could be in a romance it could be in a thriller it could be in um, sci-fi whatever the more you can put in a mystery component and then surprise your reader with uh, with the with you know who's really behind that mystery um, the better, you know, and I, I think that's the problem with a lot of people writing in any genre that's not mystery is they don't think about putting mystery and suspense and 
um, uh, surprise hook in to their premise. Yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't have to be mystery. It can just be mystery within an emotion, within a relationship, something like that. But I, I wonder, you know, when you when you kind of say that, and I don't mean you particularly, but any coach who says this, do you run the risk of becoming formulatic? Like, this is how it's done, and these five things are what you need to do, and everybody writes the same? Yeah, that's such a good question because for about 20 years of writing novels, I was always bucking the formula thing. I wanted to be unique and different. I wanted to win a Pulitzer. I wanted my writing to be fresh. And I went through six different agents and I wrote number, numerous novels. And my agents loved my work and said I was the greatest author they had ever seen. But they also said that they couldn't figure out how to sell my stuff because I wasn't sticking <laughs> to there. traditional story structure. I've so there. there's a difference yeah. between being formulaic and following story structure. And that was something that I didn't realize. And it's the number one thing that I teach in all my workshops and all my online critique groups and boot camps and everything is you got to understand novels have expected story structure. And that means you have to learn all about the turning, the five turning points, you know, your inciting incident and your midpoint and your dark moment and your climax. All great novels and plays and movies all follow traditional story structure, unless you're writing either a family saga or you're writing a like a fictionalized biography. And there's very, very few books out there like that. And Michael Haig describes it very succinctly. I think he's a screenwriting Hollywood consultant, um, screenwriter consultant, um, great teacher. And he, I draw a lot from his teaching in all the things I teach and write about. Uh, basically, he says that stories are about one person, one character pursuing a short-term goal so, you know, that's the whole idea is that when you, you think of any great book you've read, any movie you love, there's always the setup scene or two with the character in his ordinary world. And then the inciting incident occurs or it's called right. the disturbance yep. or the opportunity. There's a lot of different terms for that. But stories hinge on some event occurring right away within the first 10 percent. And that, you know, that shifts. How do you know when somebody's ready to publish though? How do you, how do you know when, okay, you got this, go, go try to find a place, uh, you know, a home for it. Yeah. Um, I would say out of, you know, a hundred percent of the novels that I critique and edit every year, I'd say maybe three to 5% are really publishable or ready to publish. And I hate to say that, but I think, you know, again, it's a lot of it has to do with the story structure, the kind of characters. And I'll be really frank. A lot of people just don't write very well. Um, again, you know, you don't have to have brilliant talent. But if you really study good writing and great novelists in your genre, if you want to be Stephen King and you really study Stephen King and how he writes and not just the structure of the plot or how long his paragraphs are or the sentences, you know, how long the sentences are or the word choice, but really the, it's the writing style. And it just takes a lot of time for people to develop their own writing style. I kind of felt I hit my stride when I got to about my fifth novel. And that was when I was particularly focusing on fantasy and I was able to really develop of that fantasy writing style that really worked for me that I really love. But I also write in a lot of different genres. So when I write psychological thrillers or I write historical Western romance, I, I write very differently. And my um, editor at my publishing house who published my seven book fantasy series, when he read my relational drama that I had written, you know, that Harper Collins picked up and um, 
And he read that. He said, I can't believe you're the same writer. I would have never guessed in a thousand years that you wrote that book because you have to write to genre. That's pretty special because, you know, it takes, it's hard enough for all of us as writers to find where we fit, but to be able to morph, (laughs) that's a completely different Well, it's just a lot of decades of writing. I mean, a lot of famous authors, you know, write in a couple of different genres and, 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 you know, they'll tell you not to do that. That is bad, bad, bad. And I was like, I was shamed and humiliated more than once in public by literary agents who told me I was being an, I was being unprofessional and an idiot basically to be writing in more than one genre. But my feeling is like life is short and you should write what you love and the story should dictate the genre because like I have this idea to write this really cool book and i've had it simmering in the back of my head for a while i mean it lit- asked, has to be literary fiction because it's so weird right but um um you know it's it's a, it's gonna it's gonna be the plot the story that i want to tell is going to dictate the type of genre and that's going to dictate the style of my writing if i'm going to write a suspense thriller i'm going to have to you know adjust my writing style to fit so all this is to say that you know, all these manuscripts that I work on and you ask like, what's publishable? The problem I see is that a lot of times these writers, even if they have a really good plot and they've pretty much written the right scenes in the right places, the writing is often kind of boring and flat. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't have that zing that it needs. And I know like agents will say, I'm looking for that special, you know, that special voice. Um, And I get that because, you know, that's, there's just that little added bit. Like when you read a writer that you love, there's always something about the way they write and how they punch home a moment or how they say a line of dialogue in there that just cuts you, you know, and you just, that is great wordsmithing and it's learning the craft. And I think a lot of people write books because they really want to be a writer or they really want to write a book. They don't really want to be a writer. Um, they want to have a book they can publish and say, Hey, I have a published sure. book. But yeah. you know, the whole idea is that you've got to, you've got to love words and you have to love writing and you have to put in the hours and the hundreds and thousands of hours of practicing and writing and studying to really master your craft and to be a masterful writer. I have notebooks of hundreds of pages of lines that I've jotted down from the books I read. I take notes when I read novels. I know this sounds kind of weird, but I tell people to do this. I do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. When you've got a great line or a great paragraph, I write it down. I'm not going to copy it. I'm not going to like copy paste it and put it in my novel, but I'm going to study it. Cause Hemingway said, when you read something that moves you, he said, figure out what that writer did move you emotionally and how you go do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That's like but the I, best yep. advice in the world. I totally agree with there's that. There's no way to, yeah. And there's no way to, to define that any better. Like you can't turn it into a math problem. It really, I mean, cause you, a lot of times the emotions you feel are complex and the emotions the characters are feeling are complex and you can't just label them and say oh that character is feeling frustrated and rage and some shame and a bit of guilt i mean it's sort of like you know you eat a cake and you know there's a whole bunch of ingredients in it but you can't like say okay there's three tablespoons of sugar and there's five you know ounces of flour you know what i mean you can't like break it down into a math problem so that's why when hemingway said look at what the writer did and kind of figure out how they did it and then you do it yourself that's not easy but it's the blueprint that's what you have to do and it just takes work and practice and yeah yeah um, i uh, when i yeah, when i, I teach workshops or i have students in my classes 
it's always about emotion. I say you you are trying to develop an emotion. Something has to be felt. Um, if you're not feeling it in some way, shape, or form, and in the range of emotion, something probably yep. needs yep. to be adjusted. Because it's it's just not it's yeah, not exactly. like you say it's not a math problem. It's literature. <laughs> it's supposed to feel something. You know, so, yeah, and uh, yeah, Donald Moss said readers read to care. If you can't make your readers care, and I, I remark on this in my comments and my critiques a lot, like, you know, readers aren't going to care about this or, you know, how can you make them care about what this person's going through in this scene? Cause it's not happening. Yeah, um, yeah. I did a whole, I put together a whole online video course, which I would love to plug because it's really popular and it's the most unique course. I, you know, it's sort of like Tony Morrison saying, if, you know, if there's a book you want to read and you haven't been able to find it, write it. Uh, so yeah, there's like nothing out there on emotional mastery. So I wrote an entire um, video course. I don't know how many eight hours or something of it, but it's got more than, um, you know, three dozen passages from novels and all kinds of excerpts and movie clips and stuff. But the whole idea is to teach how to effectively and masterfully show emotion in your characters, because there's three ways you can do that. And also how to evoke specific emotions in your reader. You need to be an emotional manipulator, right? You need to know when you're writing a scene, how do I want that character, that, I'm sorry, that reader to feel when they read the last line of this scene you need to know that you might not be able to identify what that is like again you might not be able to name the emotions but you know the feeling you, you know and you need to start with that in whenever you're writing a scene is like what is the high moment going to be at the end what's the punch what is the character change what am I going to leave the reader with what's the emotional roller coaster or feeling you know i want them to have throughout the scene is that going to change do i want them to feel something one thing in the beginning and by the end of the scene do i want my reader to feel something else so i don't think 99 percent of the writers out there ever think of this yeah you yeah. know they probably do it maybe unconsciously you know in the writing but the more purposeful you can be when you sit down to write or revise a scene um in terms of what emotional response you want to get in your reader and again i, I want to just point out that the emotional response for your reader is not always the same emotion that your characters are showing right because your characters might be feeling one thing but you as a reader might be supposed to feeling something else like you exactly. could have a character that's you know that's really you know upset because her child has just been grabbed and kidnapped and you know and she's like, um, you know, freaking out and, and upset. But, you know, you as the reader might be manipulated to feel rage, you know, because you know what this bad guy is like and what he's going to do and, you know, or something like that. And so, you know, it's all, um, yeah, I guess it's a psychological study. You have to kind of dig into the psychology of your characters and of your reader and yourself because you have yeah. to know yourself in order to write anything that's emotionally charged. One last question I wanted to ask you, and, and it's a subject that's been talked about a million times. I understand that, <laughs> the, the idea of self-publishing. But because mm -hmm. it has morphed so much, over, at least I think so, over the last few years, it's not uh -huh. what it was, you know, 10 years ago or five years right. ago. It's, it's different, and it's looked at differently in a lot of ways. And and some of the shucksters that were out there that were pushing ways to self-publish, I think of some of them have gone by the wayside, at least in my mind. But you know, it's still on people's minds. It's still sometimes looked down on. It's still sometimes looked at as the only way to go. Um, where do you, where do we stand with self-publishing now? 
Well, I'm not sure if I could speak for the whole industry, but you know, definitely self-publishing authors um, have risen out of the slime of shame and disgrace and, and uh, you know, take their place alongside all the best traditionally published authors now, um, because it used to be that you only self-published if you could not get past the gatekeepers and get a publishing right. contract. But, you know, so that has changed. And, you know, I'm sure you, you've talked about that with people quite a bit. Um, I I think, you know, for each person, they need to decide what they want to get, what, what their goals are. Um, so, you know, the fact that there really is no stigma anymore um, is a, a good thing. But also, there also opens up this situation where everybody and their mother is throwing together a book and sticking it online. And so you have all this competition because there's no gatekeepers really. Well, there are a few right. like yeah. things like BookBub or whatever. Um, but the idea is that the, the, the opportunity to be discovered is really tough. So you have to work very hard to learn all those tactics and strategies to marketing so that you can get your book discovered, for instance, like how to get discovered on Amazon by using the right keywords and all that. So there's, you know, there's that side of it, which is you have to work hard to get, yeah, to get discovered and to get your books out there. And you want to make sure you write a really great book and it's professionally edited and be proud of what you do and, you know, write your best book and all that. that. Um, you know, the other side to it is if you do go with a traditional publisher, if you can land one and they're really enthusiastic about your book and they're going to put a lot of money and back it to market it, I mean, you're still going to have to do a bunch of work, but you're going to have a lot of, um, nice uh help you know to get your book spread out spread to the whole world and you know hopefully um get picked up and sell a lot of copies whereas you might not be able to do so much on your own you know all like i said that said people who write great books and really target their genre and get their perfect book covers to match their genre and all of that um if they do all the marketing um well and work hard at it, they can be very successful. I mean, we obviously know tons of self-publishing authors who are millionaires who sell millions of copies of books and they're very famous. And um, that's very cool. I mean, either path is a lot of hard work, you know? So the idea is to write your very best book and then decide, I think it's more just sort of a matter of time, of amount of time you want to spend. Because for me, I self-publish most of my books because I want to um, get them out right away and I yeah. want to get them out right. in a timely manner. Like if I want to put out two writing craft books a year, I can say, oh, I'm going to put one out in June. I'm going to put one out in December. I don't have to worry about getting on the docket for a publisher who says, well, we're going to push that back for five years. Um, I heard that it's an average of eight years it takes from starting to pitch your novel to getting an agent to getting picked up to getting it sold to a publisher, to get scheduled to be published and then released. That's like an average. Right. You know, for someone like me who is way past the halfway mark of my life in terms of years <laughs> left on one side and years already wasted on the other, um, I don't really want to take that time. And I notice a lot of other people, especially older writers, they're the same. Like, I don't want to yeah, wait 10 yeah. years to try to get an agent, right? There's a lot of absolutely great, amazing writers out there who write brilliant books and self-publish them. And some of them are very unsung. And, and, and you know, when you can discover those authors, you know, just shout their praises and spread the word and tell your friends because they deserve to be read. And um, word of mouth is always the best way to, to spread news about books. It still is. Yeah. So speaking of word of mouth, uh, how do people get a hold of you? How do they reach out to you for coaching? How do they find your blog? Those kinds of things. 
I have a lot of websites, but my main blog is Live Right Thrive, W-R-I-T-E. Um, but you should still live right while you're writing. Yeah, um, but your best. yeah, so yeah. Live Right Thrive is my blog. Um, I also have an online school for my online video courses, which are, I think, so, so helpful because a lot of times people can read a book, but it just doesn't hit home. I, I like to use a lot of movie clips. So I think it's really fun to watch movie clips to get a point made about a scene structure or, you know, some element about characters or whatever. Um, so my online school is um, C.S. Lakin, C-S-L-A-K-I-N dot mm-hmm. teachable dot com. And there you can find a bunch of courses that I do, my online courses. And I also teach online um, boot camps. And um, I'm doing this new thing now, which is just rocking. I, I, I've started doing these mastermind critique groups for people who really want to be in a critique group, but they also want instruction every week. So it's just this great combination of learning intensely the eight essential elements to writing successful commercial novels and also getting critiqued by other people and critiquing other people stuff so it's just you know a a wonderful apply it as you go type of situation so anybody interested in contacting me for getting into a critique group or hiring me to critique a scene outline or your chapters you can just email me at cslaken at gmail.com but I love working with authors I love helping writers I don't care if you're a very very beginning and you just have an idea i just i love seeing people enthused about a story and that how to get them to start writing their story i can't tell you how many emails i have gotten over the last like 15 years from people i mean some have just blown my mind like i was so depressed i was suicidal i could not get myself off the floor and then i read your your book on how to write a story and i started writing and i'm just i'm so excited and happy and my life has completely turned around i mean i'm not saying i took the credit for it i'm saying it's the creativity, it's the creative right, process right. and the storytelling that is so healing and so satisfying. And um, I just, no matter how hard this journey is and it kicks your butt trying to become, be an author and especially to make a living at it, it's rough, uh, but yeah. it's worth it. All right. Suzanne, we really appreciate it. Uh, I, uh, it's great to talk to you. you uh, you've uh, been admired from afar, and I really appreciate it. And it sounds like the weather in the Bay Area is a lot better than it is here in the Midwest, but that's usually the case. Yeah, I'm sitting outside with my tank top in the hot sun, and uh, it's only like, what, I don't know, 11 in the morning. But yeah. Oh, man. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, thank you again. We appreciate it. And uh, keep writing. Okay, thanks. And send me that next guest blog post when you have some time. Thanks for listening to episode five of The Writer's Shed. I'm David W. Berner. Our music is from iRay Music, and all our shows are produced from inside The Writer's Shed. You can find out more about us at writershedpress.com and at The Writer's Shed on Medium and at Writer's Shed Press on Twitter. And The Writer's Shed can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Consider subscribing. We would love that. Thanks for listening.